Well, we, uh, we all had Valentine's Day this week. Did everybody remember? Is anybody who forgot Valentine's Day? Okay, that's, that's good. Probably if you forgot, you're not here. <laughs> you're in the hospital. Uh, so, in honor of Valentine's Day, I just want, I want to start this morning with a, a hypothetical situation. So, let's say that I wanted to do something really special for Karen for Valentine's Day. So, I decide to give her um, some gifts that I think are really going to communicate how much I love her. So, um, I go online and I order some Ron Hong uh, black tea straight from the Hunan province of China. Very rare, very expensive. Um, so she can have a rare, exclusive black tea uh, cup to enjoy. Um, I get her four pints of Haagen-Dazs cookies and cream ice cream. That's like, I mean, Haagen-Dazs is like the best. It's the purest. It's got the simplest ingredients. It's like so good, right? Um, got those delicious Oreos mixed in. And then I get her, um, she loves to hike. So I get her a pair of Nike ACG Taurus hiking boots, one of their best, like, super great, well-reviewed. People love them. She loves to be outside. This is great, great stuff for her, right? All of this is thoughtful. It's personal. It's useful, okay? So, Karen, come here for a second. So, (laughs) Karen, if I got you those three things, what would you think of them? Would you be glad? No. No, you wouldn't. So, what, what's first of all, what's what's wrong with the, with what's wrong with the tea? Black tea makes me gag. Okay. So, not a great choice on my part. Okay. What what about the the Hagen Dazs cookies and cream? It's a defilement of the original Oreo. <laughs> okay. All right. So, strike two. Okay. But hiking, you love hiking. So, the Nike shoes. Too small for my wide box on my foot. It'll it'll pinch. Perfect. So, strike out three of three. Okay, so, uh, obviously, I did not think very well if I organized these presents, right? So, even though they seemed like they were really good gifts, um, they would not be really good gifts for Karen. They might be good gifts for me. Uh, they might make me feel good about what I'm a great husband I am before I actually gave them to her and found out, oh, this was really suckish. Um, but if I'm just getting gifts for me, those are not going to communicate love to her, right? So, Karen, what if instead I came to you and I said, hey, you know what? I realize now I was getting you stuff that I'd like. I didn't get you stuff that you'd like. So instead, what if I got you some Tivana Peach Bellini herbal tea? Okay, uh, how about Haagen-Dazs chocolate peanut butter ice cream? Okay, because it does not defile the sacred Oreo that can only be eaten as a cookie. Yes, and um, how about a new pair of ultra hiking shoes? Okay, yes, so she would appreciate those things because all of the things she talked about, all right? Those are going to be things that express love to her. Especially, I do not defile the sacred Oreo that may only be eaten as a cookie. <clears throat> okay, so my gifts, if I'm focusing on her and what she wants, then that's going to be something that makes her feel good. Okay, so now why am I talking about theoretical gifts for Karen? Great question, because today we're going to be continuing to look at David, and we're going to see what he learned about the gift of worship that David brought to God. We're going to see how David moved from thinking about what David wanted 
instead to giving something to God that God wanted. So last week when we last, last visited with David, um, he had just come close to taking the life of King Saul, if you remember. Uh, he was in the cave, but then he thought better of it. Instead, he submitted to God, and he also honored the king. Now, if you didn't hear last week's sermon, or if you've like missed any, we're on week four. So if you missed any, I encourage you to go online. This has been a really great series. And like Drew mentioned, just it has really been um, affecting people's hearts and thinking about what God is doing, the things we can learn from the life of David and how we apply it to our own lives. So a lot happened between that encounter that we looked at last week um, between David and Saul and then what we're going to study today in 2 Samuel chapter 6. First of all, King Saul dies. Um, He was in a battle. He was mortally wounded, and he asked someone just to finish him off. He knew he was going to die, and he said, just put me out of my misery. Um, And then when we see David next after that, we're in Samuel chapter 2, and David is finally crowned as king. Now remember, way back in the first week of the series, we saw David was anointed as king, but that was 10 years prior. So it took 10 years for that anointing to come to the fruition of his coronation. But even then, his kingship still isn't complete because we see in these these first chapters of, of 2 Samuel, part of the nation of Israel aligns themselves with David and they recognize him as king. That's the southern kingdom of Judah. The rest of Israel, the northern kingdom, they align themselves with a guy named Ishbosheth, and he is one of Saul's sons. So he would be like the physical heir to the throne. So we have this divided kingdom. We've got Judah in the south. They're submitting to David as their king. And then we've got the northern territory, and they're aligned with Ishbosheth. So for seven and a half years, there's battles, and there's intrigue, and there's backstabbings, and there's betrayals, and there's alliances formed with Ishbosheth, with Ishbosheth and with David, until finally, Ishbosheth is murdered by some of his own men in his court. And then, after that happens, and a few other betrayals and things, finally, the, the kingdom is united under one king, King David. Now, if you, I encourage you to read through 2 through 5. It's disturbing. I'm not going to say it's not R-rated, because it is. It's harsh, and there's a lot of rough stuff there. But it's good, because there's one key event that's really important, and that is that David leads a band of men, and they go and they capture Jerusalem. And so Jerusalem becomes the center of this new nation of Israel. And even though its name is Jerusalem, it takes on the nickname of the city of David because David conquered it. And so it's sort of like New York City being called the Big Apple or the city that never sleeps. So they call it the city of David, named after David. That's important to remember. And this becomes the political center now of Israel. But... David doesn't just want this to be the political center of Israel. He knows that it needs to be the religious center as well. He knows that Yahweh, the God of Israel, has always been a central part of this nation he's leading, and he wants to intentionally include God in this new nation by having him in this capital. So that's where we find ourselves when we come to 2 Samuel chapter 6. Now remember, David waited 10 years from his anointing to his coronation, and another seven and a half years from his coronation to finally having this united kingdom where he is now king over all of that. 17 years. That would be like if God told you something was going to happen in 2007, and it happened 
now. That's how long he had to wait, okay? This is a long time. So if you're ever feeling impatient and feeling like God isn't working, just remember David. It takes a long time sometimes, okay? All right, so let's look at the passage. This is the beginning of 2 Samuel chapter 6. Then David again gathered all the elite troops in Israel, 30,000 in all. He led them to Bala of Judah to bring back the Ark of God, which bears the name of the Lord of Heaven's armies, who is enthroned between the cherubim. Okay, so David thinks, hmm, okay, I've conquered the city. I've made it my own. I've united this divided nation. I've even convinced one of my allied, allied nations to help me build a palace for me. But... We need to be really purposeful about including God in this new capital city. So I know, I remember that ark that we left. Let's go get that ark, bring it to Jerusalem, and we'll set it up here. So years ago, the ark had been captured by the Philistines. Yes, the same Philistines that we saw with Goliath, okay? They took the ark, and then when Israel got it back... They stuck it in this little backwater town of Bela, and they just left it there for years and years. It just sat there. And David remembers, okay, we've got this Ark of the Covenant. We should get that. And it's a, it's a great idea, really. For Israel, the Ark of God, this was the dwelling place of Yahweh. It was the place on earth where heaven and earth intersected. Back, back in the spring, you remember that when we toured the tabernacle, some of us, you know, down there in Eagle Mountain, and we went inside the Holy of Holies, the representation of that, and we saw a recreation of the Ark of the Covenant. And, and on it, on top, there were these two gold cherubim, and they have wings outstretched, and that is called the mercy seat. It is the place where God dwells for the people of Israel. It was the physical place where heaven and earth intersected. So, to bring this ark into Jerusalem, it's, it's really appropriate. This is going to be a physical reminder of the very presence of God. It's going to bring the glory of Yahweh into the center of the nation of Israel. It's a really good thing. So let's keep reading and see what happens. This is verse 3. They placed the ark of God on a new cart and brought it from Abinadab's house, which was on a hill. Uzzah and Ahio, who were Abinadab's sons, were guiding the cart that carried the ark of God. Ahio walked in front of the ark. David and all the people of Israel were celebrating before the Lord, singing songs, playing all kinds of musical instruments, lyres, harps, tambourines, castanets, and cymbals. This is really cool, right? They are bringing the ark into the city of David. David is ecstatic. He's celebrating. The troops are celebrating. There's people along the road from Bela to Jerusalem. They're celebrating. David's like, this is so awesome. I'm leading the entire nation. I've established a city in my name, and now I'm bringing our most holy object into the city, and together, me and God, we're going to make this nation great. I feel good. I got God on my side. Life is fantastic. Now, just to give you a little heads up, we're going to be seeing three different worship services today, and this is the first one. David and all the people are definitely worshiping. They're celebrating. They're happy that God is with them and that they're going to have the Ark of the Covenant with them in their new capital under this super awesome King David. It's like the Lego movie. Everything is awesome. Okay? They're very excited until it wasn't awesome. Let's read verse 6. But when they arrived at the threshing floor of Nacon, which would just be the place where like, they do some threshing in the local area, the oxen stumbled, and Uzzah reached out his hand and steadied the ark of God. So it was falling off the cart. Then 
The Lord's anger was aroused against Uzzah, and God struck him dead because of this. So Uzzah died right there beside the ark of God. David was angry because the Lord's anger had burst out against Uzzah. He named that place Perez Uzzah, which means to burst out against Uzzah. It's still called that today. David was now afraid of the Lord. And he asked, how can I ever bring the ark of the Lord back into my care? So David decided not to move the ark of the Lord into the city of David. Instead, he took it to the house of Obed-Edom of Gath. Okay, so we have gone from major celebration to major downer. Right in the midst of this big old God party, a guy named Uzzah reaches out to steady the ark so it doesn't fall off the cart, and as soon as he touches it, he falls over dead. What is going on? How could this happen? Why? Why did this happen? We're not the only one with these questions. David is asking too. It says, David gets angry. Really, God? My bud Uzzah over here was just trying to protect your ark from falling into the dirt. He reaches out to steady it, and he's struck dead. What gives? David reacts like we do. Why, God? Did he really have to die? Is this how you are? I don't even know if I want to follow you. I certainly don't want to be near this thing. (laughs) Right? So David reacts with honesty, with emotion. He lays it out before God. He's not holding it in. He's not pretending like everything's fine. He is so unsure about what to do in this situation, he decides to just leave the ark at somebody else's home nearby. Nice, right? (laughs) You keep it. (laughs) He knows he doesn't want it near him. There's too much power. It's too unpredictable, at least from David's very uninformed perspective right here. So he tells them, you're going to take the ark. You guys carefully take the ark over to Obed-Edom's house and let it stay there until I can figure out what to do. So what's going on here? Well, first, let's take, let's take a look at the bigger picture. What do we know about the ark of the covenant, about our great God who dwells, who's enthroned between these cherub and on its cover? I'm in Exodus chapter 25. This is the place where we see God give Moses the instructions for building the Ark of the Covenant. And he specifically says to build it with four gold rings on the sides at the base. So imagine you've got this giant box, and at the base there's gold rings. One, two, three, four. And to insert two poles through those rings. So there's a pole on this side, and there's a pole on this side. And those poles are supposed to stay in those rings, and you use those poles to carry the Ark. Why? Why the poles? Because this ark, as we've said, this is the very dwelling place of God here on earth. This is the most holy place that exists at this time. The place where heaven and earth intersect, that mercy seat, that throne of cherubim, this is God's home here on earth. It's the most sacred, set-apart, unique, powerful place in the ancient world. And those poles mean that this place, this ark, can be carried without touching it, without risking our unholy flesh encountering the very holy, completely pure, utterly right, awesome, majestic God of the universe. And rightfully, David is bringing this throne, this presence of God, into the center of God's people. But David is doing it for himself. He's looking at this most holy place as like a a good luck charm. He's successful, 
and he wants to have this token of success with him as he starts to establish this new kingdom of Israel. And all his celebrating, all his worshiping is simply celebrating that. Look what I've done. Or even look what we've done. Look at our cool God who lives on this box. Look how awesome he's going to make us. We're the best. We've got the one God to help prove to everyone that we're the best. Don't try to conquer us. Don't mess with Israel because we win. And we've got God's box to prove our superiority. There's not any sense of the majesty of God, the wonder of God, the holiness of God. There's just a lot of celebrating and all the good stuff that's been happening, not celebrating the God who made that stuff happen. Or even more, thinking about what does God want of us as his people as we start this new kingdom? What's God calling us to? What does God want to do in us as we exist with these other nations that we're here living among? They're offering God something that feels good to them, much like me giving Karen what feels good to me and what I want, but they haven't considered what has God called us to do? Who is he? What would he want as we offer worship to him, as we bring this Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem? So when Uzzah reaches out to steady the Ark, he's defiling the Ark itself. He's subjecting himself to the most pure, most powerful, most holy thing that's ever existed. And we, just like David, we tend to think, well, Uzzah was just trying to help. Like, why should he die for that, right? And it's a, it's a fair question. David seems to wrestle with it too. And I think, really, that should provide some comfort to us that throughout history, there has always been questions. We have never been able to answer everything when it comes to God. We're not the first ones that feel confusion or frustration or just plain mad. But our questions are supposed to draw us closer to God. Not push us away, because God can handle the questions. He can handle whatever quandary or puzzle or idea we bring to him. He's not suddenly going to say, ooh, gosh, never thought of that. He's not bamfoozled by us, okay? And while I never, I never want someone to die, that's painful. I don't think the people here wanted Uzzah to die. Certainly his family didn't. I do think a, a couple of things in this instance are helpful for us to remember. First... We're coming at this from a very 21st century perspective. Um, Death was a very common experience in the ancient Middle East. There wasn't the expectation of long life like we have now. Jason just talked about this a week or two ago. In fact, having a long life was an outlier. You were strange if you lived a long time. Death was just kind of the accepted part of the end of life. Second of all, in death... Uzzah is now in the very hands of God. That's the safest place he can be. His body is gone, but his soul is with the Lord. And third, while Uzzah may have thought, hey, I'm protecting the ark from the dirt, which is going to defile it, the dirt, the earth, has never rebelled against God. It's never fought against God. The earth hasn't resisted God's will, but every human has. The earth doesn't have sin, but we do. We, just because of our our choices, we're not holy in and of ourselves. We make choices that are different than what God would choose for our lives. 
We're willful, we're independent, we're selfish, we're self-serving. The ark coming into contact with earth, earth is far less consequential than God's holiness encountering a sinful person. Now, I'm not saying that answers all the questions. I'm just saying it helps us to have a perspective about what happened here. And as we've seen, there was not a great sense of worship of God in the scene. There was a celebration, there was rejoicing, there was camaraderie between all these people, but there wasn't acknowledgement or an understanding of the great, awesome, majestic otherness of the God of all creation. And, and I would argue that had they approached this in a different way, with the reverence it deserved, if they had truly offered worship to God for who he is, and we're going to see this happen in a minute, I think the outcome might have been different for Uzzah when he'd reached out to study the ark. I can't prove that, and if you want to argue with me, that's fine. I'm, I'm not going to lay my life on it. I'm just saying, probably from a biblical perspective, we could argue that things might have gone differently if they had approached God in the way that he intended, had honored him instead of just honoring themselves. So, okay, we've had our first worship service, and that wasn't really centered on God's love or reverence. It wasn't focusing, listening for his voice, listening, responding to his love and call. Um, that ends tragically, and so now we get to verse 11. The ark of the Lord remained there in Obed-Edom's house for three months, and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and his entire household. Then King David was told, the Lord has blessed Obed-Edom's household and everything he has because of the ark of God. So David went there and brought the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with a great celebration. After the men who were carrying the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, David sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. All right, so three months go by, during which David is doing some hard thinking and soul searching. And from the response we see, it's obvious that either David himself or someone close to him spent some time researching the scriptures to see what do we know about this ark? What can we discover? And then they hear that Obed-Edom's house is having a really great time. They're being blessed. Things are good for them. And so there's some truth to David's initial instinct that, yeah, this ark brings blessing with it. It's not a hyped up rabbit's foot, though. It's a lot more than that. And so as David reads about the nature of the ark and he begins to understand what it actually means, what it represents, the uniqueness of its space in our world, David is ready now to bring the ark of the covenant to Jerusalem, but this time with a much more humble, God-oriented approach. So first, it says they carry the ark. They read about it. They understand, okay, we know now what those poles there are for. We're not just going to throw it on a cart and have some oxen pull it. And second of all, as soon as they symbolically begin this journey, they stop and they have another worship service. This is the second one in our passage today. This one, it honors God. It honors the law that he gave to Israel via Moses. David leads all the people in offering a sacrifice. And all that is is an acknowledgement that they're not God, they're not holy, they're sinful, they're a people who choose their own way. But by performing this ritual, they're humbling themselves before God. They're repenting. They're acknowledging that a sacrifice is necessary to cleanse their own hearts and make them right before God. They're going back to what God said and saying, we need to remember who we are, and we need to remember who he is. So before they move any farther on this journey to Jerusalem, they stop, and they need to be purified, made right, cleansed, forgiven, reconciled. 
Now, we do this too when we worship. We don't offer, we don't bring a bull up here and sacrifice it, right? But what we're doing is we are looking at what that sacrifice of the law foreshadows. We're thinking about the once and final sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. That was the purpose of it all along. God was saying, there's going to come a time when this sacrifice is no longer necessary because I'm going to offer one sacrifice for all time. So we are looking at that each Sunday as we gather. We're saying, that's what makes me right. That's what forgives me. It's not because of what I've done. It's because of what he's done. We recognize that, and it allows us to know that we can approach God unashamed and unafraid. For Israel, there in the presence of God on the ark, they offer a sacrifice, they confess their sin, their need for him, and they humbly approach and revere God as he forgives and loves and restores them. And then the scene continues, starting at verse 14. And David danced before the Lord with all his might, wearing a priestly garment, So David and all the people of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouts of joy and the blowing of ram's horns. They brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the special tent David had prepared for it. And David, again, sacrificed burnt offerings and peace offerings to the Lord. When he had finished his sacrifices, David blessed the people in the name of the Lord of heaven's armies. Then he gave to every Israelite man and woman in the crowd a loaf of bread, a cake of dates, and a cake of raisins. Then all the people returned to their homes. So David has led the people in this sacrificial offering, and now it's time to celebrate. Okay, so what's the difference between this worship celebration and that first worship celebration? Well, first of all, we see David is wearing this priestly garment. Um, in other versions, it's translated linen ephod. If we look in First Chronicles, they describe it that way. And that the linen ephod um, is a kind of tunic that priests wore. It was a simple piece of clothing that set them apart as priests of the Lord. It wasn't the regal robe and breastplate and headpiece of like the high priest. When we think of like sometimes that really regal thing that the high priest wore to go into the temple. This was just a simple piece of linen. So David, he's taking his role here really seriously and humbly. He's wearing this to say, hey, we're not just bringing some cool good luck charm into Jerusalem. We're ushering our very creator. We are inviting him to be the center of everything we do, and we're recognizing our place, his servants, his children, his beloved people. And, and David isn't wearing the garb of the king, which he had every right to do because he was the king, right? Instead, he's chosen to wear the clothes of a simple priest. He's taken a posture of humility, not pride, simplicity, not extravagance, Attention on the Ark of the Covenant and the God who dwells there, not on the king and his city. And David's had a tent built in the city, a special place to house the Ark since they don't have a temple or a tabernacle yet. And he leads the people in offering more sacrifices, sacrificial offerings of gratitude, offerings and prayers for peace, sacrifices to remind everyone of all that God's done, how much they need him. He prays for God's blessing and supply, and he sends them home with this sort of like a meal kit, and each symbol in the meal kit is a reminder. He gives them a loaf of bread to remind them to thank God for the way he daily provides. He gives them some dates or meat. We're not sure which that Hebrew word means, but either way, it's to remind them to thank God for the prosperity he gives them. And then raisin cakes. In ancient Israel, raisins were aphrodisiacs. He's sending them home saying, Hey, God's blessed you with families. Let's get after it and make some more. (laughs) 
And that's what's happening. But he's, it's like it's all focused on God. Like, look what he's done in our lives. Let's keep this going. We are in the middle of something big, and it's because of him. If the first worship service was a party that God was invited to, this last worship service is a party where God is the very center of it. Three months ago, it was about David and Israel's achievement and letting God join in the fun we're having. This time, it's about God himself, remembering they're his people. They're focused on God. They're focused on their identity in him. They're not focused on themselves. They're not looking at God as somebody who's just going to help them. Now, I skipped a verse in there, and then I didn't finish the chapter. So we're going to go back and read that because they're going to give us some insight into what changed David's heart, or at least let us see how David's heart changed. So we're going to look at verse 16, then we'll skip down to verse 20. This is verse 16. As the ark of the Lord entered the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked down from her window. When she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she was filled with contempt for him. When David returned home to bless his own family, Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet him. She said in disgust, how distinguished the king of Israel looked today, shamelessly exposing himself to the servant girls like any vulgar person might do. David retorted to Michael, I was dancing before the Lord who chose me above your father and all his family. He appointed me as the leader of Israel, the people of the Lord. So I celebrate before the Lord. Yes. And I'm willing to look even more foolish than this, even to be humiliated in my own eyes. But those servant girls you mentioned will indeed think I'm distinguished. So Michael, the daughter of Saul, remained childless throughout her entire life. Okay, so some context for this. Remember last week, G- Jason briefly talked about how David got engaged to Saul's daughter, Michael after he killed a bunch of Philistines and brought back some painful trophies. I think that's what he called it. Uh, David and Michael were betrothed, but they never got married, mainly because David was continually on the run from Saul. He never could go home and stay. And so even after Saul died, David still never went back and took Michael as his bride. And both the law and the culture allowed that if a woman was betrothed, but her husband had basically abandoned her, she could get remarried. And so that's what she did. She married a man named Paltiel. And then we see in chapter 3 that during some intrigue and infighting, David makes an alliance with one of Ishbosheth's men. And as part of this agreement, he says, hey, would you bring Michael to me? Yes, we're making this alliance, but what I need for you to do is to get Michael and bring her to me here in Israel. So, Michael is carted off to David, while her husband, Paltiel, he's following behind her, and he's crying and lamenting, I don't want to lose my wife. And finally, the men say, go home. She belongs to the king. And they deliver Michael to David. Okay, that's not a pretty picture, right? Like, she's not a possession. She's a person. But it's what happened. I'm giving you a clear picture of what's going on. So, the next time that we see Michael is here. We know she's been brought back. They got married. And now we see her watching David, probably from one of the palace windows here at this last worship service. And you can see from her comments, she's not in a good place with David. Like, she is not happy that she got ripped from her life and brought here after he had abandoned her for all those years. They're at odds. And so, 
what does Michael do? She lashes out at David. She accuses him of shamelessly exposing himself like any vulgar person would do. She's angry, and she's using this occasion to take it out on him. I would even argue that's probably appropriate. They got some stuff they need to work out. (laughs) Now, you may have heard it said that David was dancing naked or he was nearly naked, but the text does not say that. It says he was wearing the linen ephod, and probably, since he was dancing and running and jumping, he probably had it, like, tied up under his belt, like where they wrap it under. So it's like, yes, he's exposing himself. He's showing a lot of leg. He's showing a lot of arm. He does not look like a king, okay? He is being crazy and foolish. He is dancing with abandon, but he's not, like, showing it all, okay? <laughs> um, Michael is upset, not because of that. She's, a, she's upset because, first of all, he's not dressed like a king. He's showing off parts of his body that she doesn't think. He shouldn't be showing his legs. He shouldn't be showing his arm. He's the king. He deserves to act dignified. And I want you also to notice that twice she's not referred to as the wife of David. She's referred to as the daughter of Saul. And why, why is that? It's a subtle reference the writer is giving us to let us know she is still aligned with Saul. She thinks Saul was right. David is the upstart. The family is rightfully hers. She and her brothers are supposed to be the heir, and her brothers would know how a king should act. And it's to all of this undercurrent, all this stuff that's going on, then David responds. And his response, it lets us see clearly where David's heart is. He is focused on God, on what God's done And David's place as God's servant. He is so grateful, so in awe, so inspired. He recognizes so clearly his place as the earthly king of God's people. And more importantly, he sees God as the ultimate king, redeemer, protector, leader of all Israel, not him. And he can't help but be full of joy and celebrate, even if that means he's going to look foolish in Michael's eyes or anybody else's. He's worshiping God. He's not asking to be worshiped as king. He's leading everybody in focusing on God, on God's strength, his power, his leading, his forgiveness, his majesty. Okay, so there in your your notes, it's got the big idea for today. And our big big takeaway from the passage is this. If we want to follow after God's heart, which is what we're calling this series, we need to worship him by focusing on God, not on ourselves. If we want to follow after God's heart, we need to worship him by focusing on God not on ourselves. Well, how do we do that? How does studying these three worship services help us move from belief to action, from knowing to doing? Well, here's a couple of questions I think we should ask ourselves in response to what we just studied. First of all, when I come to a worship service like what we're doing here today, am I looking for an experience to make me feel better? Or am I coming ready to focus on Jesus to offer him my attention and my energy. As a, as a worship leader, I have to check myself continually that I am not trying to produce a feeling. I'm not trying to get you to experience an emotion just so you can have some sort of catharsis. Are we going to feel emotions when we spend some time focused on Jesus? Yeah, I hope so. I mean, things have happened. There's a reality that impacts our lives. But those emotions are not the goal of us gathering together in worship. Our goal, if we can call it that, is simply to give the Lord what he's worth. The word worship comes from worth 
ship, devoting ourselves to a person or an object because it has worth to us. And as we do that, we might get excited, or we might get weepy, or joyful, or humbled, or awestruck, or, or just quiet. But those feelings aren't the purpose of why we gather. We gather to worship the one who deserves worship, who is worth our attention. Second, am I looking at worship as something that only happens when I gather with other people? David spent significant time in personal worship of God. He was digging into scripture. He was discovering what he could about his creator, discovering what he could about this dwelling place that they had in their possession that he didn't understand. That personal worship that David did spilled over then into his corporate worship. But he needed to examine his own life. He had to spend time on his own with God before he could lead or or even join the people in worshiping. And third, am I afraid to look foolish when I worship Jesus? David said he was willing to be undignified because the Lord deserved everything David had to give. Now, what that does not mean, it doesn't mean that David or we need to worship with that kind of abandon every time. This is not a prescription of what a worship service is supposed to look like. It, but I do think it's a prescription for what our hearts should look like. Is my heart yielded to him in such a way that I care more about expressing to him what he deserves, even if it means I might look foolish to somebody else? I love to sing. That's an easy way for me to express my feelings to God. And I get it that if singing isn't your thing, that can be a hard thing to do. It can be humbling. It can be a difficult way to express your thankfulness, your gratitude, your adoration to God, because it's not the thing that just flows easily out of you. But singing is a way that we can express those ideas together, right? When we sing those songs, we're all in agreement with what that says. This is what's true about God. This is what he's doing in our lives. This is how he's impacting the world around us. This is what he's calling us to do. We're in agreement as we sing those songs together. And I believe God is honored when we choose to set aside our own discomfort or our fear that others are going to make fun of our voice or they're going to be weirded out if we lift our hands or if we clap or if we're standing there with our eyes closed or we fall on our face or whatever it is, instead of that, choosing not to worry about the opinions of others, but instead focus simply on Jesus, recognize what he's done, realizing who he is, giving ourselves to him out of that recognition and realization. David went from leading a worship service that was really about him to recognizing his and his people's deep need for God and his forgiveness, and finally, leading his people and really celebrating who God is, all he's done, making him the center, striving for a life of worship that honors God and points people to him. In just a minute, uh, we're going to sing one more song. Worship team, you guys can come on back up. Um, Let me just say, don't take this passage um, as a challenge to make your worship something other than authentic. Like, we aren't called to manufacture some feeling. We're not called to whip up emotions or or to do some specific action. We're called to focus on Jesus and to get our eyes off of ourselves and look to him. Instead of me praying to close, what I'm going to do is just like Jason's done. We're going to look at a psalm together. Um, I'm going to read this psalm as a prayer. 
It's from Psalm 68, which is a pretty long psalm. I'm not going to read all of it. I'm just going to read parts of it. And we don't know that David wrote this during these events, but the things David writes in this psalm do seem to fit in well with what happened, what we just read about. So I'm going to close this out by reading Psalm 68, and then uh, we'll sing one more song together.